Now if you were here last evening, and I'm aware that perhaps not all of you were, but if you were here last evening, uh, we finished our study then uh, in the sanctuary, in that first compartment of the tabernacle proper, the actual tented structure that sat within the outer court. And you see on the model there that raised tented structure, it's two compartments, the holy place, which is called the sanctuary, and the holiest of all. And as we were in the sanctuary, we were uh, thinking particularly about the lampstand, and a lampstand that burnt oil, olive oil, which we know from Zechariah chapter 4 is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And we also know that strangely, that lamp was there to cast light over against itself. And we thought we saw in that uh, a picture of the Word of God. Remember that we are looking... Uh, particularly in this week of studies we're looking at the overall purpose of this tabernacle which was that God was making every provision necessary for his redeemed people to enjoy fellowship with himself it was a redeemed people who came through the gate at the outside from the outside it was a redeemed people who came to the altar of burnt offering and the labour it was a redeemed and a priestly people who came in through the door into the sanctuary. So, as we were seeing that the necessity for recognizing in the brazen altar that it is only in the perfection of the finished work of Christ that we can approach God at all, there is also then that need for holiness, for purity, practical sanctification. And then, as we thought about the lampstand, we were thinking about the necessity for unqualified and willing obedience to the authority of the Word of God. Because it's the Spirit of God who casts light over against the Word of God. And it is by reading the Word of God that we become aware of who God is, what His purpose is, what His plan is for the ages, uh, how everything is centralized in Christ, where we fit into the whole program and the Spirit of God casts light over against that. Remember, this is all part of the uh, arrangements that God had put in place so that people could come and have fellowship with Him. There has to be unqualified submission to the Word of God. When we apply these things practically in the New Testament Scriptures, uh, there's that particular passage from 1 Corinthians 11 through to chapter 14 which concentrates so much on, on practice and behaviour in a local assembly of Christians and that very important section of scripture finishes up like this these things are the commandments of the Lord and as the commandments of the Lord they are a test of our love for Christ he said in the upper room if you love me keep my commandments so here's a test of my love for Christ am I willing to obey his commandments these things said Paul are the commandments of the Lord so proper New Testament order in a company of Christians has to be based on the order of the word of God and that willing obedience is the ultimate test of our love for Christ people who glibly or uh, in a cavalier way throw overboard the order of New Testament doctrine and church practice 
and still profess to love Christ don't know what they're talking about he is the one who said if you love me keep my commandments so there's the necessity for the word of God to be rightly understood and it's rightly understood when the spirit of God casts light over against it but then we could find as we read through those scriptures concerning the lampstand that it also because of its proximity to the table of showbread it shone light against it as well and as it shone light against that table you would see that the word of God and the table of showbread have a connection now last evening we were thinking of the fact that this table of showbread is the first of three items of furniture that we're going to come across um, that is made of wood overlaid with gold the wood a picture of the sinless humanity of Christ the gold a picture of his deity so the fact that the wood is now overlaid with gold and what is more each of those items of furniture has a crown it's a lovely picture of a ministry that is being undertaken by Christ now that he is a man in heaven and there are certain ministries that he could not have undertaken had he not been here as a man particularly when we think of his ministry on our behalf as our great high priest as the writer to the Hebrews comforted them he reminded them we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities but one who was tested in all points like as we are sin apart uh, and the Lord Jesus was fitted for his high priestly office and work by being here as a man though a son says the writer to the Hebrews yet accustomed he himself to obedience in the things that he suffered and so when the writer to the Hebrews speaks about a high priest uh, who is touched with a feeling of our infirmities and uh, one who is tested in all points like as we are it's not suggesting for one moment that the Lord was tested to see if he could commit the sins that we, say, uh, that we commit but rather his testing in the wilderness was in body, soul and spirit he was tested, he was there with the, uh, with the proximity of the devil for 40 days and 40 nights but three particular testings are recorded one was to do with the body one was to do with the soul one was to do with the spirit he was tested in every aspect that a man could be tested in Israel as a nation had been tested like that the record of it is in Psalm 78 and the nation failed in every respect and this man has come from that nation and this man who has come from that nation even as there were people from Israel being baptized of John in Jordan confessing their sins this man from Israel came to be baptized of John and made no confession of sins now if he's a man and he's from Israel and he's professing to be sinless then he's professing to be the Messiah and so that silent claim made in Jordan was then immediately put to the test and the spirit led him into the wilderness Matthew says Mark says the spirit drove him into the wilderness and he's going into the wilderness 
so that the claim he has made in Jordan that he is without sin can be put to the test and it was put to the test in Psalm 78 the nation had said can God provide a table in the wilderness and so now the test comes to him command these stones be made bread again the nation was put to the test in Psalm 78 concerning whether or not God could deliver them from their enemies now he's put to the test cast thyself down off the pinnacle of the temple hasn't God promised to protect you of course in every case the Lord simply answered by quoting the word of God again Psalm 78 says the nation was, was brought to the very, very periphery the very perimeter of God's sanctuary they'd almost arrived where God intended them to be and yet they were like a deceitful bow and they turned back they didn't believe God in relation to his promise and now the devil says to this blessed sinless man you bow down and acknowledge me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them of course what he was endeavouring to do was to entice the Lord to accept those things without the suffering of Calvary they're all going to be his one day anyway and he of course as a dependent man had full confidence in the word of God and the assurance that all these things would be his one day so once again with the scriptures he sent the enemy packing and so the Lord was tested in all points physically, morally, spiritually, body, soul and spirit every way in which a man can be tested he was tested proved to be without sin and as a consequence he's now fitted to sympathise with those who are being tested and his time down here on earth as a man has qualified him to be a high priest in the glory and so that's the kind of thought there is behind shit and wood overlaid with gold and Christ having gone into heaven and there's offices and there's ministries that he performs today on behalf of his people which he could never have done if he had not been here one of those we noticed last night in relation to the table was that uh, in uh, our reading we saw that there were those loaves placed upon the table and uh, it's called the show bread literally the word means the bread of the faces and how every tribe was equally represented in the sanctuary even though people from 11 of the tribes were never going to go in there and you, if you were from the 12th tribe, Levi you were only going, to, only going to go in if you were part of Aaron's family so though they were never going to go into the sanctuary themselves they were represented there and we saw something of the lovely truth of the fact that with God there are no favourites there are no grades of Christian as far as Christ is concerned but every one of his blood-bought saints is equally precious in his sight and he presents us before the face of God we are accepted in him but then we notice that the table had two crowns and thus it indicates a dual ministry of Christ uh, in this regard and so that's why we've read in the book of Leviticus because in the book of Leviticus uh, we have read of how that bread becomes the food of the priests on every Sabbath 
And on the previous evening we remarked how there was a, a permanent miracle taking place really in the sanctuary because that bread which normally would have been unfit to eat within a few hours of being made would sit there for a whole week on the table of showbread and when it was replaced on the Sabbath the bread that was taken off the table became the food of the priests and clearly God would not ever have his priests feeding on stale bread so it was kept miraculously and permanently fresh so when we think of the light of the lampstand shining over against the table of showbread now what it would lead us to think is that as the spirit of God opens the word of God to us his primary purpose is not just to instruct us in the ways of God and in the purpose of God down through the ages but it's expressly to show us Christ because as priestly people we're going to feed upon that bread and he is the true bread he is the bread from heaven and so the thought is now of a worshipping people this is the next stage if you like it's part of the preparation for meeting with God for enjoying fellowship with God and it is to glean with the help of the spirit of God something of Christ from the word of God now we know through experience most of us that whilst doctrine is essential and sound doctrine is essential that the teaching of biblical doctrine devoid of a ministry of Christ will only breed legalism it will, it will breed a code of things that becomes sterile God never intends his people today to be as the priests were in the Old Testament these priests who, who saw these things physically and literally and had the privilege of being in amongst them hands on those priests knew nothing about what we've been speaking of this week they were totally ignorant of the purpose of the whole thing we by grace and by virtue of the age in which we live this side of the cross and with a full Bible members of the church which is his body we're privy to truth and blessing that they never had in days past and God's purpose for us is not to slavishly follow a ritual like the priests of old did but to worship him out of an intelligent appreciation of what will bring pleasure to the heart of God and what will bring pleasure to the heart of God but the mention and the appreciation of the glories of his beloved son so the spirit of God shines light over against the word of God and casts that light against the table of showbread upon which a priestly people feed and the purpose is as we are feeding on the word of God we are predominantly feeding upon Christ and we are assimilating the things of Christ into our souls and thus as Paul wrote to the Corinthians thus we are changed from glory to glory thus there becomes an increasing Christ likeness it's not in that sense mysterious it's not the province of special kinds of believer but this is what God intends for all his blood-bought saints is that, is that as we allow the spirit of God to teach us from the word of God 
so we will be gleaning truth and feeding our souls upon Christ. An interesting point for those who particularly like to uh, study whatever depth they can get to. We read about the um, utensils that went along with this particular table of showbread. And um, you might just like to read them again in verse 29 of Exodus 25. Verse 29 says, Thou shalt make the dishes thereof, and spoons thereof, and covers. Now that word cover, uh, elsewhere is translated and means literally a jar, or a, a pitcher, a jug. That's what that word means. So, associated with the table, there are dishes, there are spoons, jars or pitchers bowls and it's all for the purpose to cover with all and uh, the margin of your Bible might show you that that means to pour out with all here's the question this is a table that has loaves of bread upon it why are the utensils all designed to handle liquids? Jugs. Bowls. Things that pour. It's a bit of a puzzle, isn't it? Because the bread wasn't prepared in the sanctuary. The loaves were brought in. Very clearly the people themselves were involved in it. We read that in Leviticus 24. It was something that the people were to have an exercise about donating and bringing for the work. So, the loaves were already prepared, priests would bring them in, and they would put them on the table. Then they would eat the bread that had already been there. So, so why has this table got these different utensils that all seem to be designed for liquid? Maybe, I wouldn't be dogmatic, but maybe the answer lies in the book of Numbers in chapter 28. We can just look at that chapter together. Verse 1 of Numbers 28. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, and say unto them, My offering and my bread for my sacrifices made by fire for a sweet savour unto me, in other words, all for his pleasure, shall ye observe to offer unto me in their due season. And thou shalt say unto them, This is the offering made by fire which ye shall offer unto the Lord. Two lambs of the first year, without spot, day by day. That is, within the day. So two lambs every day, two lambs of the first year, two lambs of the first year without spot. Every day, those two lambs, two more lambs are to be offered, and it is a continual burnt offering. The one lamb, verse 4, the one lamb shalt thou offer in the morning, and the other lamb shalt thou offer at even, and a tenth part of an ephah of flour for a meal offering, mingled with the fourth part of an hin of beaten oil, 
It is a continual burnt offering which was ordained in Mount Sinai for a sweet savour, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. So this is what we were talking about when we mentioned with the brazen altar that there was always a, uh, something burning upon it. There was the, the, the lamb of the morning sacrifice, the lamb of the evening sacrifice. And remember the fire is a slow fire. The fire isn't a hard, a fast fire such as consumes the sin offering. It's a slow fire such as burns the incense. Because these lambs aren't being burnt on the altar to get rid of them. They're on a slow fire so that their fragrance might be released to bring pleasure to God. So it's a slow smouldering fire on this altar. But as with every offering, there's a drink offering associated with it. Verse 7. The drink offering thereof shall be the fourth part of an hin for the one lamb. In the holy place shalt thou cause the strong wine to be poured unto the Lord for a drink offering. And the other lamb shalt thou offer it even as the meal offering of the morning and as the drink offering thereof thou shalt offer it a sacrifice made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. Now Exodus chapter 30 makes it very clear that, that no wine will come upon the altar of incense. But this verse 7 does tell us in Numbers 28 that this strong wine will be poured out in the holy place. And the holy place is the sanctuary. Now, the thing is, you might say, well, there are scriptures that say no strong wine must be brought in. But no wine must be consumed. The priests don't consume the wine. But it would certainly appear that in association with their ministry at the table of showbread, that every day strong wine is poured out. It means that the floor area in the holy place had wine poured out upon it. What would the significance of that be? Well, the drink offering generally has in mind, in its, in its picture, what it pictures, it, it pictures the unreserved outpouring of Christ in sacrifice to God. It wasn't just that he gave himself it's not just that as the Hebrew writer says who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God but, but he, he gave himself with such willingness and such irretrievable voluntary will it, it's to emphasize that there was no reluctance whatsoever in the sacrificial work of Christ see the thought with the drink offering is that when it's poured out it is irretrievable you can't change your mind. When it's poured out, it's gone. And it's impossible to gather it up. David appreciated something of the truth of the, peace, uh, of the, of the drink offering. When you recall, he was in the hold. Uh, the Philistines were against him. Everything seemed to be against him. And uh, David sighed. He just said, oh, that I might have a drink of the water from the well that is at Bethlehem. And his mighty men fought through the Philistine lines. They got that water. They fought their way back. They gave it to David. And when I was a boy sitting in the meeting, 
down there in Plymouth, just a wee boy in my first Bible, it had pictures in it. You know, those little Bibles had those beautiful um, colour plates in them. And uh, one of them was of David. And I used to sit and, and look at this picture, and I would read the account associated with it. And here's David solemnly pouring out this water upon the ground. And I used to think, just as a little boy, I used to think, what an ungrateful wretch he was. You know, these men had just fought to bring him this water, and all he does is pour it out on the ground. Well, I didn't know about the drink offerings. Uh, and David equated the value of that water, he equated the value of it with the lives of those mighty men. He said, I'm not worthy of it. There's only one who is worthy of water with that value, and that's God. And he poured it out as a drink offering unto God. I don't know if you've ever noticed it, but in Isaiah 53, the closing verses of the chapter, there are three mentions of the soul of Christ. First is, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Now Jehovah's being addressed. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. What does it mean? Now there was absolutely no coercion upon Christ to make him go to the cross there couldn't have been and and there mustn't have been because had there been any coercion then his sacrifice was not entirely voluntary and if his sacrifice wasn't entirely voluntary it wasn't acceptable you cannot make somebody take upon themselves the guilt of somebody else that would be unjust that would be unfair the only way that Christ could take upon himself our guilt and suffer for it was if he did so utterly and completely of his own volition so the scripture when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin clearly doesn't mean that God is going to make him do this so what does it mean it's as though it's as though a voice had gone up to heaven What would it take in order to reconcile a sinner to a righteous God? What would be necessary in order for a sinner to know that their guilt is entirely and absolutely cancelled forever? It's as though that cry goes up to heaven. What would be necessary... For men and women estranged by sin and wicked works to ever be brought back to God. And the answer comes. His soul. His soul. That was God's demand. You want to know what it will take to redeem the nation? You want to know what it will take to save a sinner? You know what it will take to to make us fit for heaven? His soul. And if you have the soul, you have everything. In the word, the soul is the thought of everything a man is and everything a man has. And God said, that's the price. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. Nothing less will do. What do you read next? He poured out his soul unto death. The price 
was exacted and the penalty was endured by that blessed man who knew more than any ever could exactly what was necessary to redeem sinners to a righteous God and when God said the price that must be exacted is his soul very well he said and he poured out his soul unto death that's the drink offering irretrievable absolutely unreserved voluntary the last drop he poured out his soul unto death the third mention of course is that lovely verse that tells us that in a coming day he shall see of the travail of his soul and he'll be satisfied and he will reckon eternally that the price that was exacted and the penalty that he paid was all worth it for the prize that he gained to think that the Lord looks upon sinners like you and me saved by the grace of God and he looks upon us as he will look upon the nation that's the real fulfillment of Isaiah 53 but he will look upon the nation in the day to come and he will see of the travail of his soul and he'll be satisfied the drink offering but then you see the writer to the Hebrews again speaks of the fact that um, the Lord Jesus was made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek let's just turn to it in the letter to the Hebrews just to point the verses out to you because we're thinking of the sanctuary we're thinking of priestly ministry and uh, so these these verses are, are relevant to us we're in chapter 5 of Hebrews just break in at verse number 5 of chapter 5 so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest but he that said unto him thou art my son today have I begotten thee as he saith also in another place thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek look at verse 10 called of God an high priest after the order of Melchizedek so Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse 6 and he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek in verse 10 why? well I think the answer is this that in verse 6 he is the only priest after the order of Melchizedek solo he's unique He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But when you come to verse number 10, there's a whole family of priests now. And over that whole family of priests, he's called to be a high priest. You're not a high priest over one, but a high priest is over a family. So, so what is it that lies between verse 6 and verse 10? Verse 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him out from death and was heard in that he feared though a son yet he accustomed himself to obedience I'm reading to give the sense 
uh, of it though he were a son yet accustomed he himself to obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect being made complete in relation to his future high priestly ministry being made complete for that he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek can you see how those verses are depicting Christ pouring himself out so you see we come back to the sanctuary and it's all now leading up to a priestly redeemed people about to present to God in worship a spiritual sacrifice that's fitting and that will bring pleasure to the heart of God and how are they being prepared for that are they sitting around discussing what shall we bring what shall we say what shall we do no no this is all being led by divine persons the spirit of God brings the light of the word of God he sheds it over against that that bread that they're feeding upon and he's feeding the soul and he says never forget this constantly associated with this is the pouring out of Christ I think that strong wine of chapter 28 of Numbers poured out twice a day in the holy place was a perpetual reminder that this precious access into the presence of God this wonderful facility whereby a priestly people might minister unto God is not only based on all the acceptability of Christ at that brazen altar but there's the constant memory that he has poured out his soul unto death the cost of it all because you see what's going to happen next the reason why those pieces of furniture are in that order in the sanctuary is that with the light of the word of God cast upon the bread upon which we feed as a priestly people the next step is to step forward and to face that small little altar it was only about this wide and this square but that altar was the place you recall where God says that's where I will meet with thee now he's also told them that between the wings of the cherubim on the mercy seat that's where he will meet with them and we will see the purpose of that tomorrow evening God willing but as we read about the uh, altar of incense in, in Exodus chapter 30 we did read that God had said to them that he would meet with them there and uh, so as we think about stepping forward to this altar we need to think about what is on it it is the most exact precise intimate description pictorially of how you and I can bring pleasure to the heart of God as he has fellowship with us because upon that altar it's golden it's uh, made of wood overlaid with gold and uh, it's therefore speaking about a ministry that Christ is performing in heaven it's something he's doing on behalf of his people 
I think the hymn writer had it exactly right because as we step forward to put on that altar this wonderful incense that we read about in chapter 30 and as the fragrance of it arises the hymn writer has said to all our prayers and praises Christ adds his sweet perfume and love the censer raises their odours to consume we thought a little in relation to the brazen altar of how that it was the fat of the peace offering that became the food of the burnt offering Leviticus chapter 3 and, and the way in which we applied that was that though with all our inadequacy we can never say anything to God about Christ that he doesn't know already and know fully but in taking the fat of our peace offering that's the fellowship offering by taking the fat of our peace offering and putting it upon the burnt offering the burnt offering feeds upon it and, and as the fat flows down and into the fire the fire flares and it's a fresh wave of the burnt offering that ascends to God the ascending offering in other words our worship and our appreciation and our heart's desire to speak to God concerning his son it provokes a fresh wave of all the fragrance of Christ to arise to the heart of our God was there ever a, a greater privilege for people on earth than to bring something like that to God Paul says in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing there's nothing I can bring of myself but as in priestly ministry I am enabled by the Holy Spirit to take that which I have fed upon concerning Christ and then present it to God is a, a privilege beyond compare that we could ever bring any form of delight to the heart of God. So as that incense, which we'll think about in just a moment, as that incense rose, remember David he thought of this in, 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 uh, in his own meditations he, he spoke about um, his, his prayers Psalm 141 is it he spoke about his prayers ascending like the evening incense so that, that as that worship ascends it's not arriving if I can put it like this it's not arriving at the throne of God in its raw state it's being taken by Christ and presented by him he has a mediatorial role and this is what this lovely golden altar is speaking about it's speaking about a ministry of Christ on our behalf where he takes now our prayers and our praises not so much it's not about our supplications and it's not about our weaknesses that's not the thought remember keep the context of it the purpose of this place is, is to bring us into the enjoyment of fellowship with God it's not about our needs it's about us ministering to him in the stillness of the sanctuary and God said I'll tell you what you'll put on that altar of incense and he gives this recipe at the close of Exodus chapter 30 we'll look at that for a few minutes before the meeting finishes verse 34 of Exodus 30 
And the Lord said unto Moses, Take unto thee sweet spices, Stacti, Onica, Galbanum, these sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each shall there be a like weight. And thou shalt make it a perfume, a confection after the art of the apothecary, tempered together, that means, as your margin says, salted. So that's the fifth ingredient, and it is pure, and it is holy. And God then goes on to say, now you won't have anything like this for yourself. This is for me. This is unique. But then when we start to explore what those ingredients actually mean, the stacti is a, a gum, it's a resin. And a little research will show you that, that this particular resin, uh, it flows so freely from the tree from which it's gathered, that the very word stacti means to drop without being forced. Isn't that lovely? To drop without being forced. Come back to it in a moment. What's next? Onica. Onica is a shell uh, and its name is derived from a root word meaning the roar of a lion. I think probably all the big shells have been collected off the beaches now. Some of us remember maybe as kids you got a shell, you put it to your ear. You know, you could hear the roar of the ocean is what they used to say. Well, well, that's where the thought comes from, the roar of the lion. So we've got something that drops without being forced. We've got something that is rooted in the idea of the roar of a lion. The galbanum, uh, its word, the word again literally means fatness or vigor, strength. And then we have the frankincense, which is fragrant, it's white, it's pure. And we have the salt. Now, it's not a great stretch of thought to take those first four ingredients and just to think of the four Gospels. To drop without being forced. John tells us, the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. And the Lord said in John 16, I came forth from the Father and am come into the world Again I leave the world and I go unto the Father. Thank God for that blessed man who came without being forced. He came down without being forced. He came into this world to be the saviour of the world. And there was no compulsion other than the compulsion of his own great heart of love. But if that would perhaps suggest John's gospel, then when we think of the roar of the lion and the lion is the king of the beasts, we think about Matthew's gospel. So it's all a bit tenuous. Well, it maybe is. But oftentimes it's thought like this that produces worship in the soul. The precision of scripture again. The fatness and the vigour of the galbanum. You think of the vigour of the servant in Mark's gospel. You know it's the shortest gospel. And it's the busiest of them. And the saviour, I speak reverently, is always on the go. He is the perfect servant. Straightway, immediately. Then we think of the frankincense and the purity and the holiness of the man of Luke's gospel wrapped in linen at the beginning of his life wrapped in linen at the end of his life pure throughout his life. Is it too much to 
suggests that as the Spirit of God throws light over against the Word of God, it is so that primarily we may feed upon the person of Christ, the true bread of life. And having imparted something of the, of the person and the character of Christ in that heavenly food, we now turn to that altar and we can present something on it for him. You see, God said to them about this recipe, he said, you'll beat some of it very small. Now there was light weight of each one. There was no imbalance here. There was a perfect blend. There was light weight of each one. But some of it was to be beat very small. And put of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation. Where I will meet with thee. How lovely. That as you and I seek in holiness of heart to approach our God. And it might simply be that in reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Something about the life, the words, the work, the person of Christ has just touched your heart. And when something like that touches your heart and you, you, you realize, I've read this verse a lot of times and I've, I've never noticed that before. Why? Because you weren't diligent? No, it's just that today the Spirit of God has particularly revealed something of Christ to you. And if you make a habit that the first thing you do as soon as something fresh of the person of Christ thrills your soul, lift it to God in worship. And God says, every time you lift Christ before me in worship, I will meet with thee. The God of the glory says, I will meet with thee. And as that sweet perfume rises from the altar, all those beautiful sweet spices God says, by the way, make sure it's tempered. Make sure that there is salt in with it. Remember the meal offering of Leviticus chapter 2? No honey, no leaven, but there must be salt. Salt in all of my offerings, says God. I was a long time in my Christian life and study pondering that. And what I'm about to tell you... I've never found in a commentary. So there's a health warning on it. But consider it. I often remember hearing men say about the salt in the offering, well, salt is a preservative. Well, it is. There's no doubt. And the scripture speaks of salt being a preservative. We are the salt of the earth. There's a preservative effect of the saints of God being upon the earth. But a preservative for Christ? No. No. That doesn't fit. That, that, that picture does not work. No need for a preservative where Christ is concerned. Salt is, well, to quote the schoolboy, the Sunday schoolboy, he seems to get the blame for all these little comments. Nobody knew who he was or what his name was, but everything's attributed to him. But uh, when asked about salt, he said, well, salt is what spoils the tatties when mum doesn't put it in you have to think about that one salt brings out flavour Job tells us you can't eat the white of an egg without salt so salt brings out flavour without it something would be bland does that fit the picture? 
No. Not where Christ is concerned. One final scripture to turn to before we finish. It's in the book of Ezra and chapter 4. The book of Ezra, chapter 4. Very quickly, the background. Joshua, Zerubbabel, that small company of exiled uh, Jews have come up from Babylon after the 70 years of captivity. They have started to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And now uh, it's, the work is going to come under attack. Uh, first of all, the... Um, People come, the Samaritans come in verse 2, they say, let us build with you. It's a picture of the devil being an angel of light. I'm your friend, let us build with you. And then when that didn't work, and they were sent away, verse 4 says, then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. So now he's changed from an angel of light to a roaring lion seeking whom he can, uh, whom he can devour. So uh, that's the way the work was attacked. And when that failed, and the work still continued, then the rest of the chapter, really from about verse 6, is all about how the work was stopped. It wasn't by the angel of light, it wasn't by the roaring lion, but it was the third character of the devil. He is the accuser of the brethren. And as the accuser of the brethren, Revelation chapter 12 verse 10 is where he's called that, Um, he got these people to write a lying letter to the king who'd authorized the building and he wrote this they wrote this lying letter uh, and they said now these people are rebuilding the city they weren't they were rebuilding the temple and they said you know these people if you go back in your history books you find that they've always been troublesome they won't pay their taxes they won't pay their dues uh, and and so uh, you would do well O king if you stop these people from building you see that was the idea now Verse 12. Be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof, joined the foundations. Be it known now unto the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up again, then will they not pay toll, tribute, custom, and so thou shalt endamage the revenue of the kings. Now watch verse 14. Now because we have maintenance from the king's palace and it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor therefore have we sent and certified the king in other words they're saying we're dependent on you O king and if your revenues are damaged then our revenues are damaged and that's why we're writing to you if you have a margin in your bible the same as mine you will see that in the Chaldean language that verse 14 now because we have maintenance from the king's palace it reads literally we are salted with the salt of the palace that makes sense did you draw a salary did you know that comes from the word salt people used to get paid in salt salt was a currency and so the word salary comes from salt Roman soldiers, most of their pay at one time was in salt. So uh, the idea now is we are salted with the salt of the king's palace. What they mean, quite simply, is we're dependent on you. Salt as a picture of dependence. 
that fits Leviticus too because God found tremendous pleasure in a truly dependent man what did he require of his people he summed it up very simply do justly love mercy and walk humbly with thy God walk in a spirit of dependence and there was a man down here who ever walked in absolute and total dependence upon his God and God said see when you're putting those spices that unique fragrance upon the altar of incense where that is going to rise for my pleasure yes put everything on there that speaks of Christ but most of all tell me about that dependent man and have thoughts about that dependent man he's the man who prays in Luke's gospel he's the man who's wholly dependent upon his God and God finds such pleasure in that that he says whatever offering you bring see that there's the salt in there I want to hear about this man who was wholly dependent upon his God and through whose work and through whose current ministry today he enables my redeemed people to come and have fellowship with me.